Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning according to your promise, and that you would send the Holy Spirit so that we would seek your face with all our hearts as we look at your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Matthew. Uh, I've had a couple of weeks off, um, and now we return to this subject of the Lord's ministry, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we started this uh, by looking at chapter 3 and saw the ministry of John the Baptist initially and how he was baptising people in the desert and how he baptised the Lord Jesus. And that's what we looked at the last few times that we looked at this passage together, the baptism of Jesus Christ and what that meant. And we saw that some uh, peculiar things happened after the baptism of the Lord Jesus. We saw that the Spirit of God came and landed on Jesus in the shape of a dove, in the form of a dove. We saw that in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, where it says, As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. That wasn't all that happened when Jesus came up out of the water. A voice also came from heaven. God the Father spoke from heaven, and we read in verse 17 what he said. He said, This is my Son, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. And therefore, as Jesus is entering into ministry, we see that God is declaring that this is my son, this is the Messiah whom everybody has been waiting for, this is the prophet, this is the king, this is the priest whom you have been waiting for. And so as Jesus enters into his ministry, his full-time ministry for the first time, what is the first work that the Lord has for Jesus? What is the first work that the Lord has for Jesus as he enters into ministry? Well, it's to be taken into the desert, to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, and then to be tempted by Satan himself. This is what the Lord would have Jesus do and what he made Jesus do. And we read that in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Very strong language is actually used in Mark's Gospel uh, for the way that the Spirit moved to Jesus. Uh, the word there is for the, uh, often translated as driven out, the same word that is used when Jesus casts out a demon, when he drives out a demon. The Holy Spirit here is driving Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Now, what does it mean to be tempted? What is this temptation that the Lord had, that the Holy Spirit had for the Lord Jesus to go through? Well, the word in Greek, the Greek word behind our translations here, actually has two meanings. It can be used in two different ways. One, of course, is the idea of temptation, as we see in our translations here before us, the idea that someone is tempted to sin, someone is tempted to do something wrong, and so that's that negative connotation of the word and often used to refer to Satan's leading people to sin. But the word can also have a more neutral meaning of testing and an even positive meaning in the sense where God tests someone's faith. And so we can't just look at the word and, and always translate it as temptation. Uh, we have to evaluate whether it is a time of testing that is coming upon the Lord Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4. And some people would say this is the, the testing 
of the Lord Jesus. And we see the contrast between these two words, even in one book, how it can be used interchangeably in different ways. And that's in James chapter 1. Turn with me now as we study this word temptation before we start looking at the temptations of the Lord Jesus. James chapter 1, which is found on page 1196, if you have a church Bible, page 1196. And we'll see how these two connotations of the word are drawn out by the Lord's brother, James, many years later. Uh, Look with me at verse 2 of James chapter 1, page 1196, where James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, and that's that same Greek word as a noun rather than a verb here, but you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing, another Greek word but associated with uh, the trial word, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So you see here that the word is being used for the idea of testing of faith, testing the faithfulness of someone in God. And and you can even see that down in verse 12 as well. Verse 12 of James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But in the very next verse, we see the same Greek word used in a different connotation altogether. Verse 13 When tempted, same Greek word that you could translate test, but when looking at the context, you have to understand that it has to be translated tempt. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So you can see here in James that this word is used in two different ways. One is for the testing of faith that God uses, then there's also the, test, uh, the temptation to sin, which is what Satan does back in Matthew chapter 4 when he is tempting the Lord Jesus. And so as we come to the temptations of the Lord Jesus, we have to ask, why is he being tempted? Why does the Holy Spirit drive Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? And the answer has to be that it is for two purposes that this battle takes place. Two purposes, really. That there's two sides to this coin of this word. If the word is a coin, there's two sides to it. Why does the king send his soldier into battle, into fight? It's not to kill the soldier. The king loves his soldiers. He doesn't want his soldier to die, but he wants to see his soldier remain faithful to him and serve him well in the battle. And why does he want to see his soldier serve him faithfully? For his glory as the king of that soldier. And he wants, of course, the spoils that will come from a faithful soldier in battle who serves well and who wins the victory, that there will be spoils from the enemy that come from the service of that faithful soldier. And so the king sends his soldier into battle to test his faith and to receive glory and to win the spoils. But why does the enemy fight in the battle? Why does he come up against the soldier? The king sends a soldier in to be faithful The enemy comes into the battle for a different purpose. What is his desire? Well, he wants to see the king's soldier fail. He wants to see the king's soldier defeated. And why does he want that? Well, he wants to see the king dishonoured. He wants to see the soldier fail and therefore imply that the king has failed. And of course, he wants to gain spoils from the king and his kingdom. And so there's two purposes that are going on. As the Holy Spirit moves the Lord Jesus into battle against Satan, we see that God is testing the faith of the Lord Jesus. 
for the glory of himself and for winning spoils from the enemy. But we also see that Satan is coming in for a different purpose. He's coming in to battle so that the Lord Jesus would fail and so that he would gain the spoils of the kingdom. And so what we see here in Matthew chapter 4 is an epic battle. We're seeing two powerful figures come and fight against one another. It is a, a wonderful portion of God's word that is being handed down to us that we see these two great persons coming against one another and fighting. And it's a harsh battle, particularly for the Lord Jesus. It's very harsh for him. Why is it such a harsh battle? Well, where's the battle set? It's set in the desert. It's set in the wilderness. Why is the wilderness a harsh place? Well, it lacks the creature comforts, doesn't it? It's a hot place. It's an unsightly place. It's a lonely place. You lack the fellowship that surrounds you. And so for Jesus, it's a place that's harsh for such a battle because temptation to sin will be all the more powerful because it's taking place here in the desert. Why? Because the desire to reduce his suffering by taking a sinful path will be all the stronger. And so if anyone's disadvantaged in this battle, it's the Lord Jesus. Maybe Satan's home turf. But for Jesus, it's going to be much harder. And if you don't believe me, consider plonking yourself in the desert for 30 days, 40 days, and see if you don't sin if it is offered to you in order to get out of such circumstances, to escape the heat of the day, to escape the cold that is night in the desert, to escape the harsh, unsightly conditions that are around you. And it's also harsh because Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was at a severe disadvantage. Why? Because it's in the wilderness. But he's also at a severe disadvantage because he has been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is that harsh? Well, it would be an intense hunger that you would feel if you went for 40 days and 40 nights without food. This is not the fasting that the Muslims do during Ramadan, where they have 30 days of fasting and 30 nights of feasting. He has 40 days of fasting and 40 nights of fasting. The intense hunger would be overpowering. And therefore, if a sinful path is offered to satisfy that hunger, the temptation would be all the stronger as a result. You don't believe me? Well, think how angry and irritable you would be if I told you you weren't having lunch today. In your heart, there'd be a questioning why and a dissatisfaction. And then if I told you you weren't going to have dinner and lunch tomorrow and dinner the day after, then in a few hours' time and in 24 hours' time, the temptation to do something wrong in order to satisfy that hunger would be all the greater. And so Jesus here is fighting an epic battle because of the great adversary that is coming against him and the harsh conditions that he is experiencing as he is tempted to sin. But what is the result of the great battle? Well, it's a great victory for the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
Christ was led out by the Spirit into this battle with man's great enemy under harsh conditions. But what happened? Jesus triumphed. Jesus triumphed. Christ's faith in God stood firm. Christ's faith in God's word never wavered. And so there is a great result that day when Satan went against Christ. There is glory to God. Glory to God. And glory to Jesus as prophet, priest and king. And what else? Spoils for God. Captives of Satan are released as he works towards their release in his battle against Satan. We read in Luke chapter 11, verse 21, the Lord Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. And many would say that Jesus is referring to these, this, even this temptations that he faced. That this was a binding up of the strong man and the beginning of taking away the spoils of that strong man, which is Satan. So the question for us is, are you a spoil of the kingdom of Satan with Jesus as your leader? There's no greater head than the one that we see here in Matthew chapter 4 as he comes against Satan and is victorious. Why? Well, who are the alternative heads that you could have? Who are the alternative leaders who may save you from Satan, who may go against Satan and resist him? Well, who's the default head that we have? Well, it's Adam, our first father. Many, many years ago, did Adam face the same battle that Christ faced with Satan? The answer is yes, but also no. Did Adam face Satan? Yes. Same circumstances? No. Very different circumstances. How so? Well, Jesus was in the wilderness, in the desert. But Adam, where was he when he faced Satan for the first time? In paradise, in the Garden of Eden. How else was it different? Well, Jesus was starving. Adam was well fed and had every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil to satisfy his hunger. What happened? Adam sinned. He listened to Satan and did not trust God and did not trust God's word. And what was the result? Shame for him and the curse of God for him along with all his descendants, along with his whole family. He brought shame upon the whole human race and the curse of God. But you may say, I don't need Jesus to save me from my sin and save me from Satan. I don't need Adam either. I know another good person that can save me from Satan, who can resist the evil one. Well, closely examine your favourite politician, your favourite academic, your favourite intellectual, your favourite author or your favourite celebrity, and you'll soon see sin in their life. You'll see sin when things are going well for that person. You'll see sin when things are going badly for that person, when the conditions are harsh. But you will see sin if you closely examine anyone. Why? Because there are no good people. Put even God's people in the desert, and they sin. You see it in the Old Testament. 40 years in the wilderness, and they sin, including Moses. 
Moses sinned against God. The great man himself, the great prophet, he sinned against God. You look at the Apostle Paul, another great man, who can resist the evil one, can he not? Well, what do we read of his experience with sin in Romans chapter 7? Turn with me to Romans chapter 7 as we try and find someone other than Jesus who will resist the evil one and who we can trust in to help us resist him ourselves. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, page 1118. 1118, starting at verse 15. Romans 7, verse 15, where the Apostle Paul writes on page 1118, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members." Here is the great Apostle Paul, and yet we see a man who cannot resist the evil one either. He finds that what he desires to do, he doesn't do, and what he doesn't desire to do, he finds himself doing. And this is one of the great church leaders. Is he going to be able to help us to resist the evil one and to save us? You may say, well, I've rejected, of course, Adam. I've rejected all other people. But I know someone who can save me. It's myself. And that's a default setting for many people. That we, in ourselves, will look for our own strength and we'll be able to defeat Satan. But the sad truth is that none of us can battle the temptations of the evil one without sin. If the Holy Spirit leads us out into battle as he led Jesus out so many years ago, we regularly fail, even under the easiest of conditions, let alone the harshest. Can't we fight with another or gossip about other people and slander them whilst in a lovely air-conditioned restaurant with the finest of food before us and even being consumed by us? We can sin in the easiest conditions let alone if we're in a situation where we're hungry and hot and bothered. We can sin in all those conditions. And if we're honest then, as we read Romans 7 and we see the experience of the Apostle Paul, we see our experience there too. We know what we should do. But when the evil one comes along, what do we find? We find ourselves doing the opposite. Not doing what we should do and doing what we shouldn't do. So who will save us from the evil one? Who will save us from sinning against God? 
Well, what did the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 7, verse 24? After talking about what his experience is, what does he say in verse 24? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we, Adam, or any other person go into battle against Satan without Christ, what happens? We only open a door to hell. But what happens when Christ battles Satan? When he fights the evil one, he opens the door to heaven. Really? How does he open the door to heaven? By going into an even greater battle with Satan at the cross. The great decisive battle in the war between good and evil, between God and the great enemy, Satan himself. See, this battle in the wilderness that we read in Matthew chapter 4, it's just a preliminary battle in a great war that has been going on all through the centuries up to this point. It's merely round one for Jesus as he goes against the evil one. The cross where Jesus died was the major battle. How was the cross the greatest battles? Was the greatest attack ever, like none in all history? How so? Well, from Satan entering into Judas to betray Jesus, to the temptation in the garden to avoid the cross that the Lord Jesus experienced, from the pain inflicted by men in the physical suffering that he experienced of the flogging and then, of course, the crucifixion itself, to the isolation outside the city with hunger and thirst. I mean, he knew hunger and thirst back there in the wilderness, but here again he experiences as he's taken away from the fellowship of God's people outside the city, in a sense, to the wilderness again, and he cannot satisfy his hunger and thirst because his arms are stretched out and pinned down to the pouring out of God's wrath upon him, to the taunts of men to come down off the cross if you are the Son of God and ease your suffering. This is the greatest attack upon the Lord Jesus, the greatest temptation that he ever faced to relieve his sufferings. But how else was the cross the greatest battle that the Lord Jesus ever faced? Well, the greatest glory was achieved. Why does God send his son into battle against Satan so many years earlier? It's to achieve his glory, to see his faithfulness of his son. And here at the cross, the greatest glory is being achieved for God and for his son as he remains faithful to God and hangs on that cross to the end. And in this battle, Jesus is actually achieving the greatest glory because he is winning the war. He's winning the war that has been raging for centuries. Ever since Adam ate that fruit, the war has been going on. And this battle is the battle to end all battles, to end the war itself. And so it's the greatest battle because it gives the greatest glory as a result. And then, of course, the greatest spoils are gained. What spoils? Well, sinful men are redeemed. Sinful men are set free from Satan himself because of that battle at the cross. As Jesus is taunted, as Jesus suffers and experiences the temptation to be, to, of his own strength to leave that situation, he remains faithful and sinful men are redeemed 
that the penalty that they deserve for their sins is taken upon his shoulders and they therefore are set free. But you ask, how do we know that Jesus won that great battle so many years ago? Well, it's by his resurrection. By his resurrection, after his death, we read in Acts chapter 2, 24, where the apostle Peter is preaching and he says, God raised him, the Lord Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. By his resurrection, we know the war is won. The battle at the cross was won, but the war is won because he has been raised from the dead. And so as we study the battle of Jesus and Satan in Matthew chapter 4, let's not study it so that we can be our own messiahs. Let's not study Matthew chapter 4 and think that we can resist Satan in the ways that Jesus did with the word of God so that we can somehow achieve a sinlessness, a sinlessness, and therefore save ourselves from Satan. Why? Because we can't. Why? One sin is enough to send us to hell. And we already have the sin of Adam against us. Original sin. Not to mention all our actual sin that we have performed throughout our lives. We can never be our own messiahs. We can never practice what we see in Matthew chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus does in order to save ourselves. What should we do instead? Well, let's use the temptations of Christ to lead us joyfully to trust in Jesus as God's son who defeated Satan in the desert but also with the cry, it is finished at the cross. That great decisive battle many years after this first battle that we see in Matthew chapter 4. Let's study this preliminary battle, round one so to speak, always in light of the great battle, the great temptation that was to come, that the Lord Jesus resisted and won the war with. Let's learn from Jesus how to fight the battles that remain, but as ones who fight in Jesus, ones who fight in the shadow of the cross all the time. Why? Because in the shadow of the cross, the war is won. Even if we lose a battle to Satan in our lives, we give in to the temptation of the evil one. We find ourselves with the Apostle Paul doing what we ought not to do and not doing what we ought to do. And we feel dejected and that we're going to lose the war. We're not going to lose the war if we fight our battles in the shadow of the cross. That's why we sing Bearing Gold's hymn, which we're going to sing in a moment. Look with me at your bulletins there, the final hymn there, Onward Christian Soldier, because it teaches this so well. Look what it says from verse 1. It says, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. That's how we fight our battles, in the light of the cross, with the cross going on before. 
not with ourselves standing up and doing what Jesus did so many years ago, because we'll fail. But if we go with the cross of Jesus before us, we will win. And that's what the rest of the hymn teaches us. Look at verse 2. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host us flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus, going on before. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body, we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. What must we remember as Christians? What must we remember as we read chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel and see the temptations of Christ, see the testing of Christ by God? Any battle we face against Satan, no matter how painful it may be, is only a small skirmish in a war that's won. So let us never fear to fight Satan, to fight sin but boldly go into battle when the Spirit drives us into battle. Let us boldly go, knowing that the war is won. But if you're not one who trusts in Christ Jesus, if you're not one who has believed that Christ is your head, that he is your leader, that he is the one who will save you from the evil one, then be afraid. Why? Because the war is over. Yes, battles continue, but the war is over and you have lost. You're on the losing side. Jesus won the war so many years ago at the cross with Satan. But Jesus does welcome all who wish to swap sides before they die. After that, though, there is no more swapping sides. What is the great battle for you? if you're not one of Christ Jesus's? Well, the great battle for you, as you fight Satan, is whether you will give up your unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the great sin. People look at all kinds of sins. They look at the Ten Commandments. They look at sexual immorality, drunkenness, theft, covetousness, murder. But they all stem from the great sin of unbelief unbelief in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. Swap sides. The war is won. And you can come over to the winning side if you will simply trust in Christ Jesus. Won't you join us on the winning side? Children, this goes for you too. From a young age, you can swap sides. By default, you are under Adam. That man in the garden many years ago who gave up so easily. But you can swap sides to Christ's side, who did not give up, even under the harshest of conditions. And you can sing with all God's people, if you will swap sides, sing joyfully, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you for resisting the temptations of Satan by your faith in God so that you rose victorious against Satan in the wilderness and you also rose victorious after the cross. You rose victorious from the grave because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our unbelief and for trying to fight Satan without you, without the cross of Jesus going on before. Help us to trust you and so win every battle against Satan as we use the tools that you have given us, as we look at your example in Matthew chapter 4, but primarily because we know the war is won by your work at the cross and we trust in that work. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is not trusting in you, may they swap sides now by faith and so rejoice with you for all eternity in heaven. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.